right, well, we continue on in Nehemiah. We're in chapter 4. If you got a Bible, feel free to open it, or we got one up here on the screen for you. You probably got one in your hand if you got a phone. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 15 through 23, and um, we're talking about organizing a kingdom. How many of y'all are planners? Anyone a planner? About three of you. All right, we need you for the rest of us. Apparently, we don't have too many. Um, what does a to-do list do to you? Does it, does it uh, make you sweat? Does it bring you comfort? Uh, does it scare you a little bit? You know, it's funny because when you think about planning, when you think about organizing in general, just as, as topics, um, some people find freedom in them. Some people think, wow, this is going to help me rest. This is going to be a relief. This is going to help me function better. Some people are burdened by them and they think, oh, that's just one more thing to do. It's one more thing I'm not good at and makes them feel bad about themselves, their personality. Um, but let me ask you a bigger question because we normally don't think about uh, organization or planning in terms of spiritual things. Uh, let me ask you this. Is organization, is it sacred or is it secular? I mean, is it, is it something that is just a good practice for the world? Or is it something that like we should be taken serious in the church? Let's back up. Let me, let me ask you this way. Is it just a secular thing? You guys, church folks, you're all scared to say yes on that. Is it sacred? Yeah. Why is it? Why would you say it's sacred? Well, you don't answer because you're the young pastor guy. Let me ask someone else. Anyone who thinks it's sacred, why do you think it's sacred? Yeah. Creates order. He plans for sure. When you ask yourself the big questions like, is God a planner? Yeah, he's a planner. Does God have a schedule? You bet he's got a schedule. Walk through the Gospels and see how Jesus did things and when he did things. He did it on a schedule. Does God organize? Man, he created all this out of nothing. Ex nihilo, the doctrine of out of nothing. And it could be chaotic, and yet there's order. And God's a God of order, not of chaos. Scripture tells us that. Does God have a to-do list? Yeah. You don't think of like the book of Revelation as a to-do list, but that's one big spiritual to-do list. This is how it's all going to go down. There's some things God's going to do when this whole thing ends, right? You see, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, on a practical level, if I come to you on a Sunday morning or even tonight and I say, we're going to talk about organization and planning, preparation, stuff like that, there's maybe just a little something in your evangelical blood saying, but this doesn't sound like the gospel. This sounds like it's too practical to be spiritual. But it's those very things that bring us the most comfort in God. Like, that's the gospel. That God, being a scheduler, being a planner, being an organizer, comes into our chaos 2,000 years ago, sending his son to die on a cross, saying, I know you're broken. I know your timing's off. I know everything's wrecked in your world. I know sin has devastated and will continue to devastate your life now and eternally. And I'm saving you from it. And I'm inviting you into my rest, into my schedule, my timing, my to-do list, my priorities, everything that we would say, oh, that sounds secular, is incredibly sacred. It's sacred. That's good news. 
You see, our theology says our God is in and of himself self-sufficient. He don't need you. He wants you, but he don't need you. He's self-existent. He's self-sustaining. By very nature, God is perfect in his plans, in his timing, in his schedule, in his to-do list, a.k.a. his will. And there's incredible rest for the church when we realize, man, when we take simple things like planning, recognizing if we're doing this in context of our own plans, it's, it's evil and wicked. But if we're aligning with God's will, like we're reflecting something beautiful about God. Just like a little child coming home and bringing their, their kindergarten uh, drawing home and you put it up on the fridge and you say, oh, that's, you just love it because that's your little kid. No, that's my, my four-year-old realizing that um, they're creating the image of God and God's a creator and they're creating something that's beautiful. It's a reflection. And not only that, but even when it comes to relationally, as we talk tonight about organizing and planning, it's not so much about your personality. It's about your love for other people. Um, we have, for so, far so long, we, we've said, well, it, it's a personality thing. Uh, when people organize their lives, when they plan, um, they, don't, they don't trust God or they don't have the right personality. And we, we have excuses for why we don't take that stuff serious. But if you really dig into what organizing and, and planning does for someone who loves God and wants to bring him glory and, and is aligning with his will, um, you'll see that it's uh, hopefully a deeper heart desire to love other people well. And we'll get into why. It reflects that. But you're reflecting God and you're loving people well when you take this serious. And so I hope that you see something that maybe you thought of as secular and see it as sacred tonight. Um, Nehemiah, in chapter 4, we talked about last week, he, building a wall with a bunch of his buddies, uh, got attacked. Not just once, but twice from some haters. People who saw that their power was going to decrease if Jerusalem's increased. And ultimately, they came to fight. And we stopped after verse 14 when it looked like the whole nation of Israel, those who were helping, got discouraged. And they were like, what are we going to do? We can't bear the burden. There's rumors that we're going to be attacked by everyone because it wasn't just this dude named Sanballat or this other guy named Tobiah, which way back in Nehemiah 1 and 2, those were the only guys. Um, But now they got a whole bunch of other people, the Ammonites and a whole bunch of other ites to help them fight. And and it looks like they're going to throw down with Israel. There's no hope. But now we pick up in verse 15, and you're going to see that that Israel not only um, sought God and averted the crisis, but they regrouped, and they organized, and they planned, and they got things back together. And sometimes you go through crisis in life, and you're like, I'm thankful I got through that. But you realize, I need to change some things. I need to go about life a little bit different. And Nehemiah is going to experience that tonight. Before we jump into that, I just want to do this before I forget um, there's so much we could talk about on this topic. There's two, two books that I would say, if you want to study this further, might help you. One on a very practical level, Connecting the Gospel to Organization. Uh, it's a newer book by Matt Perman um, called What's Best Next. Um, it's not my favorite book in the world, but it's pretty good. If you want some help on how to organize emails and to-do lists and some of those basic things like that, um, very practical. Uh, one that's a little more of a spiritual classic is this one right here. Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. Um, and it addresses the bigger issue uh, with order. And, and that is ultimately when your outer life is chaotic, it sometimes reflects an inner life that's chaotic. And, and how, to, um, how to order your world around the Lord's. And so 
Uh, let's talk about organizing a kingdom. His kingdom, and then on a smaller level, our little day-to-day day life uh, kingdoms. And so, let's jump on in. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each, bur- each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. That was the Jewish day, about 12 hours. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, we're going to move quick through this. Um, We're going to talk about uh, corporately, us as a church, maybe give you a bit of a behind the scenes when it comes to disciple making um, and what we corporately do in the the church world, in particular here at Crosspoint, when it comes to organizing and planning uh, to do the Lord's will, but then individually as well, what it looks like for you. And so we're going to hit those two things, which is a little bit different than what we normally do, but we're going to rock and roll through six things that planning requires. Number one, planning requires alignment with God's plan. Alignment with God's plan. Where do we find that? Right off the bat, verse 15 says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So you got two plans going on. One plan was to do the Lord's will, to hear his voice and to do what he wanted. That's Nehemiah and Israel. And another plan was to fight against God's plan. And which one do you think won? Right? God's plan. Right? Because that's how this all ends, right? Ultimately, people might think in their daily lives that, well, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to not maybe, um, uh, do what God wants. I'm going to, I'm going to live my life the way I want it to. At the end of the day, God's going to have his way. And he's ultimately going to be glorified by your receiving of him or his justice towards you. One way or another, he's going to be exalted as king and God over all. And so you got to understand, this works out this way. This is a microcosm of how all of life ultimately plays out. If you do your own thing, if you, if you don't align with God's will, it will ultimately end bad for you. Sometimes you don't experience earthly consequences in the moment for doing your own thing. Sometimes you experience temporary pleasure. Sometimes you got things going on. Maybe you have wealth. Maybe you have a good family where you think, you know what? My plan might just be better than God's plan. Some people outright rebel against it. Some people just don't think they need God's plan. But it doesn't end well. And for those who recognize, no, we need the Lord. And they line up with the Lord. And they repent and they obey and they receive the grace they see and the love that God wants to give them freely. Um, they experience a better plan. You wonder, what in the world happened between verse 14 and 15? Now, 
Verse 14 ended with Nehemiah rallying them together, saying, I know you all are discouraged, but rally together. God will fight for us. And then it says in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall. What, what happened? Like, it looked like, if you read through verse 14, that all these other people from the north, south, east, and west of Israel were going to attack Israel. Israel had, their, their, they were, their backs were up literally against the wall. And they were trying to figure out, what are we going to do? They were all freaking out. That was the last four or five verses, verses 10 through 14. And yet, somehow, they knew because they saw what we can only assume is God's people united and said, we know what God has said. We're going to do what God has said. We're standing firm even though it don't look easy and it looks like our back are against the wall. We're going to stand up. And over and over in Scripture, God shows when small groups of people do the Lord's will, powerful things happen. When individuals do the Lord's will, it changes the world. It happens. Let's talk about this on a personal level. How about your life? How do you know that you're aligned with God's plan? There's obviously some things that you can just tell from Scripture, right? Like if you are marked by faith in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. If you find yourself... Uh, turning from your sin and your fleshly desires. Some of them don't seem so bad. Some of them are downright evil, but they're all yours and not God's. And you start following his plan. You, you see that you're marked by repentance and obedience and faith. There's things that you can know, man. I'm, 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 I'm aligning with God's will. But sometimes it can be a little bit blurry. In the Christian world, you can pack this place out and not quite know who's really aligning with God and who's not. Like we can sing the same worship songs. We can come and we can give about the same amount of money. And we can serve in about the same ways. But we know some of us are really good at playing church. We're good at faking it. We're good at going through the motions. We're good at just doing what we've always done. And not necessarily connecting with God on a heart level. Not really necessarily obeying God. I've told people this before, particularly in marriage counseling. For those who have been following the Lord, following the Lord for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and they find themselves in my office because their marriage is falling apart or whatever the case might be in their life, and I say, listen, this is incredibly serious. You've got so many, and you're some of the hardest folks to reach in the nation, maybe the world, because you've heard the gospel so many times, and you think that you're in it. You think you're walking in it, and you don't ever show up on a Sunday or any time else thinking, I need the gospel. This is for me. I haven't received it. You think it's for someone else. And so you're here not actually showing any marks of Christ on your life. And yet you have deceived yourself into thinking that you don't need the same Jesus that desperately wants to break through your life and heal this thing. That's really hard to reach those folks. It's incredibly hard to reach those who think they already have it. This is why planting a church in Mormon country was difficult because they think they've got the gospel and they think you've got a lesser version of it. But let me, let me just say this, and this is an illustration I came up with literally 20 minutes ago, so <laughs> you get what you pay for, and this is free. If you told me, standing up here trying to preach, do my thing, and you saw, wow, I see you leaning up against that table all the time, maybe we could get you a chair. Let me tell you about this chair. This chair is sturdy. This chair is comforting. You can rest in this chair. It's strong. It's all kinds of amazing things if you just rest in it. 
You tell me all about this chair, how amazing it is, how strong it is. But like, I got, I got to know how to interact with it. And if I said, well, thank you for telling me about this chair. And I stood off over here and I just looked at it. You think I'm experiencing the comfort of this chair by just looking at it? No, that should drive me more crazy, right? You, you could say, well, I'm going to stand over here and hide a little bit. And when times get crazy, like when I get super tired and I don't think I can do this anymore, I can't stand anymore, I'm going to poke my head out and take a look at that chair to get some comfort. You think I'm going to experience comfort? If I walk up to this chair and I'm around this chair every Sunday from 10 to 11 and I see this chair doing its thing and other people sitting in it and I try to tip it over and I drag this thing all around this room and I say, listen, I'm calling out, chair. Help me. Give me some rest. I'm headed off to my job in Minnesota because I want a new job there. I didn't ask you if I should take that job, but I want you to bless that job. Will you come with me to that job? And I want to date this person. Now, they don't follow you and they don't care about you, but I just, I just wanted to see if you could come and you know, help that person and you find yourself dragging this chair. Are you going to find any comfort from this chair? No, the only way you're going to experience what this chair really is and does is if you align with it. And the only way that you're going to align with it is if you're resting right here. And you find that you're not just hollering out to the chair in hard times. That you hide when things are going good. And you say, you know what, I'm not going to talk to God that much because things are going good. But when things get hard, I'll pop my head out and come back to church. Or you try to drag him around, blessing whatever you got going on. That can look like a Christian life. To the unsuspecting Christian next to you, you might be tricking them. Because they hear you praying. They've heard you say while you sit at Starbucks, I want the Lord. I need the Lord. Have you heard my, have you let me tell you about my marriage. It's horrible. My kids are acting up. And they tell you verbally, I want the Lord. But they don't ever repent of sin. They don't ever walk in faith. They don't ever align with God. They've been trying to get God to align with them. And that's why they don't experience his comfort, his strength, his presence. And you say, you come to church every week? (laughs) What do you do for that person? And what you look behind the spiritual curtain, what you find is that they've never actually moved and aligned themselves. And what happens is when you sit here and you experience the strength and the comfort, you say, there ain't no way I ever want to move from this. What was I doing before? That might be where some of y'all are at. I hope not. But sometimes it's good to see things visually, even as silly as the (laughs) illustration might be to what might be going on behind the scenes in your life. Now, corporately, what does this mean for us to align with God? I know this is going to sound odd, but um, there's a lot of churches who do their own thing. There's an evangelical culture with programming 
and, and um, technology and, and just there's just there's a pattern that's unofficial that churches if they're just like well we're a church of 200 what do churches of 200 do and okay we need to have this ministry and this ministry and this ministry and they, they just go find people and they and they try to do it and they feel like if i just do kind of what all the other churches in general are doing surely i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing this is so inc- this is so incredibly crucial corporately as a church that we have things like the great commission certainly God's word as a whole, but that we're abiding in him because just because we are the church doesn't mean we're always doing what the church exists to do. This is why churches get off track and they find themselves ineffective in their communities because they might not actually be doing anything that they're supposed to. You can't compare yourself to what the churches down the street are doing. We could all be going down the wrong road together. But this is why, for us, our mission, the Great Commission, isn't just um, some sort of statement that we have written and we put in a desk drawer and say, well, every church has to have a vision and a mission. No, this is why we cling to it and we say behind the scenes all the time, are we actually making disciples of Jesus? Are people repenting of sin? Are we preaching the gospel and not just fluff around the gospel because that's easier and people want to hear that stuff? Are we preaching the beautiful stuff but the hard stuff, the great stuff, but... The stuff that's going to require some movement, some action, some obedience. Pray that we do that. We all choose to do that. Number two, planning requires a love for people, not projects. It's not all bad to love projects or tasks, but if you love them more than people... Um, we've got a problem. Verse 16, the first part of it says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. So he wants to build this wall. Remember, to this point, it's halfway built, but it ain't all the way built. And half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. So that's armor, right? They used to call that mail. Planning requires a love for people, not projects. See, plans... In his mind, are important, but he recognizes, okay, people need protection. People need taken care of. And how many of us, if we were in Nehemiah's position, and we know what it's like to get started on a project, whether it be a house project or a craft project or any kind of project that we're doing, we're like, oh man, I'm gung-ho, I'm focused on this thing, and we start to lose sight of the fact that projects are for people. People aren't for projects. And so we get things twisted, and we start to view people as projects. And all of a sudden, we wouldn't have, like Nehemiah, stopped and said, you know what, let's slow this thing down. We'd be like, no, you can't stop this. Efficiency, 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 we've got to knock this thing out. And we would have bulldogged our way through it, hurting the very people we were trying to build up. You don't want to build a city for people who hate you. People who are burned out. Behind the scenes, we've got to remind ourselves all the time that as a church, like this whole building project thing we're talking about, it's good. It's great. Can we walk through it? Of course we can walk through it. We've got to make sure that we're taking care of our people. God's building his kingdom, people, spiritually. He's building us. It's not about physical buildings. We can take care of that, though. That's part of it. But it don't ever trump the people sitting in this room. See, Nehemiah had his mind set. He was going to sacrifice Efficiency for the sake of taking care of these folks. Um, 
I'm reminded what Jesus said when it comes to the Sabbath. Remember, he was talking about David and a time where they ate the consecrated bread and they, they shouldn't have been eating that, but it was on the Sabbath. And it was like, oh gosh, what's going on here? And he, he tells them the story and he says, you need to remember the Sabbath. So the structure, this beautiful thing God has planned, it was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he knew people, especially religious leaders, can get to the point where they can say the structure, the day here. That the way this is planned can be so important that, that it trumps people and people become nothing. And people you just judge against the structure. But he's saying, don't you realize they were hungry? They were going to die. They were physically going to die if they didn't eat that bread. Do you understand the heart behind all this? You've got to remember that. It's all about people. You've got to have a people first mentality. Let me ask you a couple questions. Maybe some, some litmus questions or tests for your own life um here's one when you think about your day off i'm gonna assume you all have a day off once in a while if you don't that might be the first thing you take care of um are your days off your activities during your days off are they driven by to-do lists or relationships so here's who i want to spend time with or here's what i want to spend time doing how many of us judge the end of our, our our day off by did i get everything done i wanted to if that's coming across your mind compared to did i did i spend quality time with the people um with the lord with loved ones, you might be off track a little bit. You might love projects more than people. Um, do you view projects as a means to bless people, or do you see the people in your life as a means to accomplish your projects? You can find, um, if you're doing something at home, and your kids or your spouse get in the way, you say, I just need to be alone. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Put that paint roller down. You're going to get it everywhere. You find yourself barking all the time. You got to remember, you're painting that room because you got someone beautiful who's going to sleep in that room, and that's your 10-year-old daughter. That's your spouse. Who cares if, if they get a little paint on something? Like, like it, it's a house. It's a home for people, for humans that you're called to love. See, here, here's what happens. Um, there's two extremes with planning when it comes to individual uh, us personally, you can um, you can overplan and you can underplan. And, and when you um, overplan, you tend to demean the people in your life. When you underplan, um, you burden them. Overplanners choose a clean desk, an organized desk, um, over uh, kids who 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 if they touch it, they 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 might yell at them and bark and say, "What are you doing? Don't get that! Don't do that!" Don't come in here anymore. This is my area. Or I'm, I'm coming up with the grocery list for the week. Please quit licking my feet or whatever two-year-olds do. Sorry, I've got to, that's my four-and-a-half-year-old. He would probably be licking feet. I was, I was on the phone with Tara today, and she was like, stop that, Silas. Anyway, um, sometimes these don't sound relevant, but they are very relevant. You see, people who overplan, they exalt their plans and the people um, are degraded. People on the flip side, and this is important, people on the flip side who underplan, they burden the people around them. You ever been in a staff meeting where everyone showed up prepared but that one person? And you're like, do you, do you understand how important it is? Like, you're wasting everyone else's time. We did the work, and you didn't. And this didn't work. If you went on a date with someone and they showed up looking like a wet dog and they didn't, they just got off work, they didn't take a shower, they didn't care to take a shower, they didn't change their clothes, they, whatever the case might be, 
Like you would initially think like, did, did you, do you care about me? If you, if you didn't even like brush your teeth, comb your hair. That's, who cares about what you think about personal hygiene? You should be caring about what the person you're about to go on a date thinks about it. Right? Like, it, it, because there's a degree of planning that communicates caring. And you gotta, you gotta understand and recognize that corporately as a church, um, and we talk about this all the time, you can get in ministry mode. Staffs at churches can get siloed, where each one comes and they just care about their own ministry and their own thing. And, and, and under that, they can get in maintenance mode. And they can say, I need two more volunteers for that. All of a sudden, they don't have names anymore. But I need two volunteers for this. I need four volunteers for that. I'm lacking volunteers here. And before you know it, it's just emails and people showing up. Emails and people showing up. Let me ask you, have you ever been burned out serving in the church? A lot of people don't serve anymore in their local church because they served in a local church, maybe at that one, maybe at the one previous, and they got worn out. They said, oh, I see there's a need in the kids' area, and they stayed in the kids' area until Jesus was going to come back, and Jesus didn't come back, and so they left that church because they got worn out. And they thought maybe something deep down thinking, did the person in charge see that I am worn out? Now, I'll say this as a leader, you got to tell them because they got a lot on their plate. And they can't read minds. Nobody's in the business of reading minds. Jesus can read your mind. We can't. But that's also important for ministry leaders to be checking in on their people, to be investing in their people, to have a relationship to the extent um, that, that they know. Are you struggling? Are you hurting? It's people first. People don't accomplish. We're not building something physical. We're building something spiritual. We've got to, as a church, take care of our people. Number three, planning requires leadership requires leadership. This is, this is a little bit odd, but it'll, it'll make sense here in a second. You see, plans need created, and they need carried out. Some can create, but can't carry out. Some can carry out, but they can't create. Here's what happens at the end of verse 16 and verse 17. It says, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. So Nehemiah and the leaders said, we're not just going to create the plan. We're going to help you carry it out. We're going to be there as a pillar to, to see this thing through. And, and those who were building the wall and those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So someone's got to decide that. Someone's got to say, you know what, if we're going to do this in such a way that we can protect ourselves from being attacked by people who don't want this wall to be built and we can accomplish what needs to happen with this wall, we've got to think this through. Someone's got to make decisions. There's a lot of churches when they lack leadership, they struggle. Because everyone wants to go in a million different directions. Some might say, you know what, let's, let, let, let's do this with one hand, we can carry a bow uh, or a spear. and the other hand, we can carry our rocks for the wall. Some would say, no, we need to just carry all the rocks. Um, and some say, no, we just need to stop building all together. And some say, no, we need to take a Sabbath. And then we need to come back and work on the wall. And then some say, like, there's a million different options for how churches should function, for how your own life should function. But it takes some leadership. Now, individually, here, here's, here, here's where this is important. Hmm. I should be careful how I say this. In general, the older you get, and I say this in general, and all of it's in context with aligning yourself with God, okay? So so understand that. Um, The people who were the most organized, 
who, who pray about planning and plan, who um, have to-do lists, who schedule. They, they not only tend to be more successful in life, but they tend to make the greatest impacts in the kingdom of God. Why? Because they see their life and they understand my life is going to end one day and I want to be as impactful as I can. I don't want to ever put my structure or my schedule over God's spirit or trumping God's plan. But if I, if I see that God wants me to be effective and impactful and to think through this, because in the world we have retirement planners, we have um, family planners, we have uh, party planners and wedding planners. We should have kingdom planners, people who think through disciple making and say, well, what does this look like for my life and how can I bless my city and my co-workers and I can think through how, how this could look. Um, those people who set goals, they tend to have a direction and take steps to get there. And those who don't tend to wonder a bit or never get off their seat. And and in general, I'll be honest, especially when it comes to our reputation as Christians with the outside world, if you're one of those people that say, it's just not my personality. I'm not a planner. I don't organize. It's not my personality. Remember, you are an image bearer, and so you reflect the God who is. But people struggle to trust people who are unprepared. If I came up here and said, I'll be honest, I didn't even open the Bible. Would you really want to hear me preach? Prior to me doing this, I didn't prep for this at all. He'd probably step up and say, let's just have a prayer meeting. <laughs> One of the most respected pastors um, or was for me that, that I listened to and he preaches. He's just spot on in a lot of things he says about the word of God. And one time he said, you know, I preach for about an hour, but I prep for about an, the same amount. He, over the years, he's gotten to the point where he can just prep in that. And there's something that doesn't sit quite well there because even if you know the word of God really well, you could spend hours just praying and consider yourself blessed that you've studied the word in a way that you can communicate it, but you don't take time off. You pray like crazy for the hearts and the souls and the, and the spiritual condition of the folks that you're going to be speaking to in your own life. You pray, you pray, you pray. You see, because what I said earlier, there's a degree, and I don't know to which degree, but there's a degree in which planning, organizing, communicates caring. If we followed a God who had no plan, we would struggle to believe he loves us. If the next crisis you went through, a Christian came and said, I just want you to take comfort in this. We don't know how this is going to go. God has no plan and everything's unstable. How many of y'all would want to come worship that God next Sunday? Behind the scenes, if you, you wonder, what, what, what do pastors do all week? There's a lot of this direction. We're always asking questions and walking through. Where are we headed with our grow groups? Where are we headed with the ministry as a whole? Let's think 20 steps down the road. Let's, let's think one step. Let's ponder on what just happened. Let's process. Let's take care of the people. How can we best shepherd the people? How can we love them this week? How can we take care of them? It's planning, it's planning. But if we just, listen, when I first started um, in ministry, I realized 
uh, as a church planner that I was geared as a routine guy. I needed routine. Um, but I also had a heart to make the greatest impact in the kingdom possible. And, and one of my friends said, "Here, you need to do this practice. And uh, I don't know that I would recommend this for all people. But for me, knowing my life, knowing that I needed, I needed routine and I wanted to make a big impact, um, I started doing it. And I've got a 40 to 50 page document uh, on, on my computer. I don't do it anymore. Um, but for years I did it where I would write down every 30 minute increment of my day what I was doing. So that I could look back at my week and say, am I making the most of my time? Am I serving the kingdom uh, in ways that other people can serve and I can delegate? Am I serving where I need to be? Am, am I making disciples? Am I doing what I need to be doing? For some, that might be a helpful task. For some, that's a little bit overkill. For me, it was helpful because I, I saw, wow, what am I actually spending my time doing? You can say all day long, even as a church leader, and there's church leaders who do, here's what we want to do in the community, and let's get out there and do this, and let's do this, and they can preach about it, but you actually have to have someone to carry it out. And good leaders recognize you've got a plan. You don't, you don't do this outside of God's will. Please understand that. But when you're abiding in him and submitting to him, and you say, okay, I care enough about the kingdom to put some thought into this, to put some energy into this, to think it through before we just randomly run into things. You lose credibility with people if you say, let's go gung-ho and do something, but you don't have it planned out. It's like this building thing right now. We got a building we're looking at and we're serious about. And, and we would love to take it to the next step and say, should we, should we buy this thing? But you know what? We're having the architect run a few drawings. Why? Because if we present this to the people, we want them to know we've been praying, that we've been patient, that we've thought things through. And when they have 100,000 questions about how much is this going to cost and what's that and what are the options and here and there, you got to be prepared. That's not overkill. That's just being responsible. We have a culture who doesn't love responsibility. Go work with teenagers. You, you can find that it's, it's prevalent, not just with teenagers, but everybody. Number four, planning requires communication. Requires communication. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. And in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So three things that he recognizes about communication. Number one, Nehemiah recognizes the need for communication, right? So this is what happens when you plan and you realize, wow, we, we got a plan, but if no one knows about the plan and we can't communicate the plan, then this is going to be chaos. And when you have personal chaos, you're going to have corporate crisis, and so he recognizes it's one thing to have a plan in your brain, but you've got to communicate this thing. So I see a need because y'all are over there and we're separated. And here's what's going to happen. Okay, we're going to do this. And when, when we blow this trumpet, then we're going to rally in this spot. And so everyone's on the same page. Number two, he recognizes that, that he needs the right tools, the ability to communicate. He says, I got this guy with a trumpet. And he's going to stand right next to me. Right? I've thought it through. I can't just yell to him. But the most effective way for communicating is going to be this trumpet. We're going to do that. This is premarital counseling. 
every couple. Session two, first exercise. I know it. Doesn't matter what their background is, what story is. We're going to do an exercise on communication. Because people can say all day long, well, I communicate well, or I don't communicate well. Let's dig into actually giving you tools. You've got to be a listener. We call it active listening. And you've got to be assertive. You've got to be able to, to speak up um, your needs, your wants, your desires. Not in a bad way, but in a way that communicates. And, and so we'll do this, and it literally takes an hour and a half to two hours. We'll all say, okay, each one of you, separately, write down three things you'd like more of or less of in your relationship. And they do that. And then I say, okay, here's how it's going to go. This is a silly little task, but here's what we're going to do. One of you is going to start, and you're going to say, I would like more or less of this, and then you're going to follow it up by, and it will make me feel like this. And then the other person who's actively listening, so this is the assertive part. Now this goes to the active listening part. You're going to say, repeating back to them what you believe they said and what you heard them say and how it would make them feel. And it's kind of silly, but I'll tell you what. We go through a lot. It takes an hour and a half to get through each one of their three things. We talk about them and we walk through them because they need to actually have the skills and some tools to say, okay, this is what it looks like. You could say, well, I need to go home. I heard the sermon today about um, planning an organization and it requires communication. I need to go home and talk to my spouse. But do you know how to listen to your spouse? Do you know how to talk to your spouse? You say, well, I know how to voice my stuff. Do you know how to voice it without yelling? Do you, uh, that's not how I voice it. I just don't talk for a couple days, and he knows what I'm saying. That's not voicing it appropriately. Well, I listen. Do you listen by actually listening, or are you just pausing, taking a breath, and thinking about what you're going to say next? You got to have tools. Number three, he actually communicated. He actually did it. He said, this is how we're going to do it. And he told them that. And he said, here's the game plan. We're going to rally here and do it. If you're going to plan, you've got to communicate. Tara and I, last week, um, it was Thursday, and uh, our grow group goes to uh, Arbor Court. It's kind of a retirement community in town. And um, at the end of each month, we preach the gospel. We take the Lord's Supper together, and we teach them how to be missionaries where they're at. And... and um, I kind of dread it, not, not going there. Let me backtrack there. I dread prepping for it because I got to go get all the Lord's Supper stuff. And you're like, well, who just carries grape juice like in their pocket? Like, no, no one does. And so you got to, yeah, maybe Napoleon Dynamite, he probably does. But anyway, um, you, you got to go and, and get grape juice and usually got to go to the store and then you got to go get the bread and you got to go do stuff. And, and so um, it's like four hours before. And I said to Tara, as I was walking out from my lunch break and I said, oh, hey, will you go and get um, the grape juice for the Lord's Supper, and she said, we, we just went twice like, to the store. Me and Silas went twice in the last few days. And she's like, normally we just go once, and we forgot something. We had to go again. Like, and, and I said, okay, so are you, you going to go? <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. But if you don't go, then I have to go. And be honest, like we just stared at each other for uh, quite a few seconds and it was just kind of awkward because we realized that I had a plan and she had a plan and separately they might have been just fine but we didn't communicate the plan and when you don't communicate the plan good plans become bad plans and I'll tell you what on a personal level 
especially if you're talking roommates, some of you might have roommates, if you're talking marriages, if you're talking coworkers, pretty much any relationship, you want to know, outside of the big stuff, the, the morality issues, right, adultery, different things like that, um, if you want to know what will tear a relationship up more than, faster than anything else, there's these two little words, expectations and assumptions. It's the daily grind of a lack of met expectations and some assumptions that the other person didn't actually fulfill or, or, or think they were going to do. Uh, let me give you some examples and see if any of this comes up. Well, I thought you were going to pick the kids up after school. Well, I thought you were going to Joe's basketball practice to get him. Well, I just assumed that you are going to pay that bill because you saw it, right? Yeah, I saw it. Well... Well, I just expected that you were, because you were at the grocery store, you were going to get what we needed. Well, I assumed because you were going tomorrow that you were going to do it. How many arguments? How many plans gone wrong? Because it wasn't that you didn't have a plan. It's that you don't communicate it well. And when you got your own plan and your spouse or your roommate got their own plan and you're not on the same page, I mean, how many times have you counseled someone through some drama where literally, literally, all they needed to do was go talk to someone. And you said, I love you, but just go talk to the other person. Just go talk to them. Could have been avoided. How many times could you pray and just talk to God when you got conflict going on? But you don't. And then you go tell your friend or your pastor, how you don't feel God's love, how you feel abandoned, how you don't sense he's there. But you got access to him through Christ. When it comes to corporately, communication is key. We, over, we try to over-communicate everything. People, if we can announce it five weeks in a row from the stage, there's still going to be someone said, hey, I didn't know we were doing that. Say, please, drop your kids off. Two and a half minutes earlier, you'll hear a lot of things you didn't know we did. <laughs> Social media. Well, I don't have Facebook. Email. I don't check my email. Probably going to my junk email. No, you blocked us. And I can tell because it says you blocked us. Because <laughs> you thought we were going to send you a bunch of spam. But once in a while, there's an, actually an important email there. Over-communicate, over-communicate. You know what more people than anything have said about this building stuff? And from past building experiences, you know what they say they want from the church? Just communicate. Just communicate. Keep us in the loop. We can work through anything together if we just know what's going on. Number five, we're going to have to move quick through this one and the next one. Planning requires unity. Verse 21 says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So here's what he's saying. We're going to work hard. We're going to do this together. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to need all y'all to sleep. That's what passed the night. I need you to come back to Jerusalem. So you could go scatter, but if we're going to take care of each other, if we're going to do this and carry out this plan together, if we're going to be organized, we got to physically, we got to be together. We got to be unified. Singles, when you plan, be unified in your heart and your mind. Don't be wishy-washy. This is, if you're in college, this is all the time, right? Where you say, 
to one friend. I think I'm going to transfer schools. Yeah, they've got a different degree that I want. And then two weeks later, you tell someone else, no, I think I'm going to stay here. And then that person talked to the other person and said, did you hear that Margaret's going to go to this school? No, Margaret told me she's staying at this school. And then people wonder, like, what's going on in that girl's head? And did you, did you, did you know that the Lord can talk to you and wants to talk to you and don't start walking in a direction he hadn't told you to go? But sometimes out of discontent and just wanting to make decisions, we, we, we say we're going to do things, but we don't actually do them. Well, I think I'm going to take this job, or I think I'm going to do this, or I'm going to break up with them, or I'm going to start dating that person. You've got to be unified in what your heart and your mind, but unified with what the Lord is telling you. Seek his will and do what he's telling you. Families, have some family meetings. That might sound old school, might sound traditional. We say together when we have church meetings, we call that a family meeting. You don't want to be the wife who's dragging your kids through to your dreams and your goals. You don't want to be the dad who's working a job because it's 60 hours a week and the rest of your family's suffering and you know they're not quite on board. But hey, you feel like this is the best thing for the family. No, everyone needs to be on board. They need to do this together. You need to communicate. And I'll just tell you straight up, for those of you chasing dreams that's wrecking your family, you need to abandon your dreams. and Don't sacrifice your family at the altar of your ambitions. You need unity. Unity trumps everything else. As a pastor, I'll tell you, and maybe this is a little rash of me, but I've, I've thought it in my mind. I've thought, if this stinking building gets us to a point of division in any way, shape, or form, we'll nix this thing so fast. We'll stay in this building until Jesus comes back. We're going to be unified. We're, we're going to meet in a tent, in a field. I don't care what we do. We're going to be in houses. We will be unified. We will either repent of our division, or we ain't going to buy no stinking building. Because unity trumps everything. Jesus said, we're going to be known not because of the building we buy next, but because of our unity and our love for one another. Last but not least, planning requires perseverance. Verse 23 says, So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Picture how stank. If you're building a wall 2,000 years ago, this huge wall in the Middle East, and you're sweating like a dog, you got dust, you got dirt, man, you're a rank. But he's saying, no, I have set my mind. We ain't going to change our clothes. We, we know what the plan is. We're going to carry this thing out. We're going to do this. And it takes sacrifice. It takes follow through. In your personal life, don't sacrifice. Don't forsake patience for instant gratification. We live in a culture that loves instant gratification, right? Nehemiah saw a bigger prize. He knew, hey, two times we just got attacked. We could get attacked a third time. We could freak out and run, but we're going to play the slow play. We're going to stand firm. We're going to be here. It doesn't matter if we don't ever change our clothes again. We're going to do what's right. He saw a bigger prize. Some of us forsake a bigger reward for a lesser reward because we want our reward right now and jesus said several times you can get one now it's gonna be a lesser one and the greater reward is always sanctification but even from a practical sense how many wives or husbands married someone that wasn't a believer because they fell in love and they wanted marriage now guess what five ten twenty thirty years down the road they look back and they're miserable but they wanted what they wanted now how many people went to that school, took that job, that they weren't sure the Lord was leading them in, 
Or maybe they were, like we said earlier, just trying to get Jesus to bless them. And Jesus said, I ain't going to bless something I didn't tell you to do. And they're looking back saying, I got myself into a whole heap of misery. Because I wanted what I wanted now. The greater reward isn't that you're going to get the best husband. You may never get married. Or that you're going to get the perfect job or, or whatever. That's not the great. The greater reward could be partially, but it's going to be spiritual. And it's always going to be at least on earth sanctification. That patience and perseverance and hope develops character. And you start to find yourself becoming more like Christ in his image and less like your old life. And you can bring him glory that way. That's always the end goal. Corporately, we've got to keep pushing on. We've got to keep pushing on. Here in early August, I'm going to go preach in Utah back at uh, the first church that we planted. And uh, they're going through some hardships. And um, they've transitioned pastors, and it's been heartbreaking for them. And uh, there have been issues, obviously, that led to that. And I've been curious, and uh, I've been to some degree walking them through, but they've been doing this on their own mostly, and they are um, going back to the basics. And when we set that thing up, we said, hey, it's going to be simple. Uh, our mission is to know, grow, go. We're going to make disciples and we know Jesus is Lord and Savior who grow in him and who go make disciples of him. And and we're going to keep it simple. And I said, we come back, we're going to spend the next six, seven, eight weeks just walking through individually and corporately what that means to do what we were created. This is why we exist as a church. This is why every church exists. We call it No Grow Go, but it's just the Great Commission repackaged in a simple way. And I'm proud of them because I'm thinking, man, think about it. They could be discouraged. They can go in a million different directions. They can say, you know what? We had a good lifespan. How are we going to get another pastor to come out to the desert? It's hard to get people out of there. It's slow going. Utah has one of the highest, if not still the highest, suicide rate in the nation. It's the most religious state in the nation. People between the ages of 10 and 17 have tripled the suicide rate in the last few years because they're hopeless at a young age. Drugs, I mean, it runs rampant. It's a hard place to do ministry, and they could scatter. And I'm so proud of them that they're not, that they're getting back to the basics. and They're pushing on, they're pressing on. We're going to have things. We have had things at Crosspoint that could make us stop in our tracks and say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Is this even worth it? Every person is going to feel that at times. Every leadership team is going to feel that at times. Every pastor is going to feel that at times. But you keep walking because here's the beauty. There's a plan. There's a greater plan. It's been carried out since the beginning of time. The plan of redemption. And what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago what he's offering us today, what we get to be a part of is a bigger plan. He wants to come in your chaos. He wants to organize your life around the will of God. He wants to give you grace. He wants to give you mercy. But he wants you to align with him. And ultimately, I am incredibly thankful that just like Nehemiah persevered, that Jesus, when it was his time, he didn't stop when he got spit on. He didn't stop and bow out when they said, you say you're the king, where's everyone at now? You say you got angels, where are they at now? But like a lamb led to the slaughter, he stayed silent. And when he got beat, when he got his skin tore, when he got cussed at and mocked and nailed to a cross, 
he kept going because he knew the plan. Plans are important. Thank God for that plan. And as disciple makers and followers of Jesus, we want to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of that plan. Let's pray.